1945, a soldier of the 44th Infantry Division of the United States Army was patrolling in the mountains of Austria. The war had just recently ended, and approaching was a group of men on bicycles. Little did the soldier know that he was about to stumble upon one of the greatest assets to be picked up by the Americans. This was Werner von Braun, his brother, and some other members of the V-2 rocket development team surrendering to the United States and joining the Operation Paperclip. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Clio History. My name is Matt. And I'm RC. And this is the Space Shuttle Episode 2, The Men Who Built the Structure. Now, rocketry is an old discipline, growing out of China originally as a fun novelty, then developing into a weapon of war. The terror of something like a rocket was the main advantage on the battlefield. With the West's adoption of gunpowder and rockets, the terror weapon only spread, as shown by the United States National Anthem, those rockets' red glare. Rockets, being a serious scientific research topic, was not really a thing for most of rocketry's history, however. It took a few creative men inspired by Jules Verne and other science fiction of the time to make rocket scientists what they are today. Herman Oberth became fascinated with rockets after World War I. A Romanian mathematics teacher teaching in Germany, Oberth thought about using other fuels than black powder currently used in military rockets to give a better performance and a more controlled burning of the fuel within the rocket. Oberth figured that gasoline and liquid oxygen, high-performance fuels and rockets could be developed, and with time, such rockets could carry men even into space just like his love Jules Verne novels. Newton's concept of orbits had inspired science fiction writings and orbiting research stations or orbiting mirrors that could reflect ice into ice packs. All of this was what Oberth was dreaming about when Oberth wrote Rockets into Interplanetary Space in 1923 and published it at his own expense. There were no donors or supporters, but the publication had the desired effect of drawing attention to his work, which was scientific instead of fantasy. Some of that attention came from Moscow, where one Konstantin Sokolovsky, sorry, neither of us uh, really speak any other languages, so the pronunciations are going to be a bit rough in this one, who was a Moscow math teacher, and he had similar interests in rocket technology when he obtained the book. Sokiovsky was born in 1895 and from a young age had been interested in airships, astronomy, and other fantastical concepts like those. But in 1895, he combined those interests into the design of a spaceship. Drawing many of the same conclusions Oberth had about required liquid fuels and what power and performance would be needed to get a rocket into orbit. Sokiovsky differed from Oberth, however, in conceptualizing the use of liquid hydrogen as opposed to kerosene or gasoline as the fuel to be used in addition to liquid oxygen. The liquid hydrogen would not be used in a rocket until 1960, though. <laughs> Once Herman, Herman, Herman Oberth's book made it to the USSR in 1923, the new Bolshevik regime saw an opportunity. They took a copy of one of Sokiovsky's published papers on rocket science from 1898 and asked, quote, why do we always have to get from foreigners what originated in our boundless homeland and died in loneliness from neglect? This adaptation of rocketry pushed rocketry to new heights in the Soviet Union. 
It was seen as the new forefront of science, a new idea as revolutionary as the ones that formed their revolutionary government. And, importantly, it was a new field of science that didn't have any major powers currently competing in the development of research. Soon, the development of rocket societies would spread across all of Europe and lead to the establishment of the Society for Study of Interplanetary Communication in 1924. This was effectively just a hobby convention for rocket enthusiasts, or fans of Oberth's work, and also some fans of Jules Verne or H.G. Wells' science fiction novels. One of these hobbyists was Sergei Korolev, a Ukrainian who moved to Moscow in 1926. He was admitted into one of the top aviation colleges in the USSR. Soon, his time in Moscow and interest in aviation and rocketry brought him to a meeting with Savalsky. Russia's rocketry research was coalescing and advancing wholesale as Korolev's studies in university and resources it provided him allowed to be practical, hands-on rocket research to begin in earnest. And the Red Army shared the public and scientific community's newfound interest in rockets as well. For this group, though, the applications were much more practically seen. It was far easier for rockets of this time to explode than fly successfully, and explosions, in the right context, were in the Red Army's interest. Korolev's group, MOSGRID, or the Moscow Group for Study of Reaction Motion, the acronym probably works better in Russian. Yeah, it doesn't really work here. <laughs> began to receive funding from the military for research. The Army's own group, the Gas Dynamics Laboratory, would soon merge with Moscow in 1932, forming one united effort to advance rocketry from crude black powder to sophisticated controlled designs. This is merging both the military and the civilians. With the launch of the 09 in 1933 and reaching 1,300 feet in the air, we, they were finally seeing some actual results with this research and effort. Three months after the 09 flew, the next rocket flew, called the GRID-X. Many flew may have been a strong term, reaching about 250 feet in the air and then careening out of control and crashing. This rocket was marked as a failure, and not the last one, although failure did have its lessons as the flaws revealed could now be fixed and the design improved. This was a new research area, after all. Rocketry had just been, you know, developed and focused on, especially by Oberth, uh, only a few decades earlier. By this point the of 1932, the merged organizations had a new name the Scientific Research Institute of Reaction Propulsion, or RNII. Acronym also probably works better in Russian. Korolev becoming the new deputy director of this new institute and, in addition, becoming a commissioned officer in the Red Army. Now, in its official government research agency, the RNII had more resources at its disposal than it could have dreamed of as a rinky-dink Moss Grid group. With these resources would arrive ambition and competition internally. So Germany hosted the only other military-supported rocket research organization at the time. In truth, the rocketry interest had spread across the home country of Hermann Oberth much in the same way as it had spread in the USSR. But for Germany, the field of rocket science provided a method of skirting the restrictions placed upon military technological development by the Treaty of Versailles. 
Such a new field was this that the architects of the Great War's peace plan could not have fathomed restricting the field when the treaty was written, as rockets remained merely in the realm of science fiction. At least the rockets we're talking about. <clears throat> Though Germany was more openly flaunting the treaty obligations elsewhere, and indeed hiding violations wherever it possibly could, loopholes that did not require such discretion in their execution provided far easier and faster development. In 1929, the German government, still under the Weimar regime, authorized a small exploratory government program to see if further advances beyond black powder rockets were practical. By 1931, this program proved the feasibility of these rockets, like the ones proposed by Oberth in his 1923 paper. The Repulsor 1 and 2 successfully flew, the Repulsor name was taken from some science fiction works, and the Repulsor 3 was quickly on the way, which had a novel idea at the time, parachutes. The program was proving the worth of expanding the scope of the design. The idea the German rocketeers began to picture was replacing large artillery pieces like Big Bertha or the Paris gun, and instead using mass-produced, larger versions of these test rockets they were constructing. Indeed, these rockets would not need enormous like trains to lug them around, which barrels would need replacing every few shots, and which would provide massive targets for counter-battery artillery fire or aircraft bombing. No, these rockets could be launched on their own, and they would fly faster than any interceptors sent to catch them, and they would have a longer range to boot. The problem lay in getting the guidance systems made, and the rockets, with sufficient performance and payload capacity for a useful amount of explosive, still needed to be created. Werner von Braun was a son of a Prussian Junker, an old noble family. The von Brauns had been present in Prussian society since the Mongol invasion in 1295. Werner's mother had an interest in astronomy, and she passed that interest on to her son. The interest in astronomy naturally transformed in his interest into the burgeoning field of rocketry and spaceflight. The young von Braun soon acquired a copy of Ober's 1923 volume on rocket science, which he was shocked to find that there was a large sums of mathematical equations. By no means a prodigy in math, Von Braun decided that if rocketry would require him to understand math, then he would do his best to improve his skills. And after flunking mathematics the year before, Von Braun soon joined the German Rocketry Club at his college and impressed his peers. His proficiency and enthusiasm soon led to his natural selection for the Army's Rocketry Group, the rocketry group was designing rockets, just like uh, we've said earlier, in full vagrants of the Treaty of Versailles from development, even though it was never mentioned. The rocketry group didn't have to keep anything secret, like tank development, pretending that the tanks are tractors, because, you know, people in France didn't think about that rockets too much. He worked with this group all while still attending university courses in pursuit of his Ph.D., which only took him 18 months to receive, and his work with the army helped accelerate the studies, and even his dissertation was classified top secret due to the work it contained. But his graduation led to a full-time participation in the army rocket troop, which at this point in 1933 had a few working prototypes ready to launch. The A-1 was their first design. As von Prahn put it, exactly, it took us exactly one year to build and one half second to blow up. This failure, or enlightenment, led to the redesigned Model A-2. Two of these 
with a 650-pound thrust engine designed by Von Braun would successfully fly in late 1934, reaching heights of a mile in the air. At this point in 1934, the Nazis were in control of Germany. Already looking forward to war, the successful A-2 was upgraded into the A-3, the first feasible design for military usage. With a far larger thrust engine of 3,300 pounds, this rocket was only to be a stepping stone, a proof of concept for their final design, the A-4. As you know, they've dropped the more unique and interesting names for something more uh, mathematical. Once the A-3 was able to provide the viability for larger rocket engines, the A-4 project moved forward and was constructed and weaponized, boasting a 55,000-pound thrust engine and a physical payload capacity of one ton, and its range being 160 miles. Stalin, after seizing power, saw enemies everywhere. The Russian Revolution had swept the Bolsheviks into power, and after a civil war, they remained there. But with Lenin's death and Trotsky's failure to outmaneuver him, Stalin was the sole Iron Man of the Soviet Union, bringing with him the Great Terror of Purges. Korolev wrote and published his first book in 1934, Rocket Flight into the Stratosphere, and the RNII's work was continuing as it had before. But the Moskrid merger with the GDL was not a happy one. The militarized GDL members conflicted with the civilian Moskrid members often, and with the GDL's members having the senior role in the partnership due to their military obligations, the conflicts just brewed more and more resentment. This resentment and conflict did reflect the greater Soviet Union at the time, as people were being arrested under the lightest suspicion by the NKVD, and forced confessions and implications of others stewed into one big paranoid cloud over the whole country. One such implication was when when Valentin Glushko was arrested and interrogated by the NKVD. He was an innocent man, he was the designer of the first Soviet liquid-fueled engine, and he was a leader in rocket artillery development. But none of this mattered to his NKVD interrogators. Glushko was guilty because he had been associated with one Mikhail Tukhachevsky, who was only arrested because he was a popular general and seen as a possible threat to Stalin's regime. Stalin ordered the NKVD to find a reason for guilt, and the NKD, NKVD had thus forged evidence of collaboration with the Nazis in Tukhalev and presented on his arrest warrant. Now they wanted the names of Glushko's co-conspirators, whoever he may think of. Under the torturous interrogation, Glushko came up with Korolev's name. Korolev was taken into state custody in 1938 and sent to the Gulag system for his internment. Ten years of slave labor would be his sentence, and served in the wastes of Siberia. But the timely demise of the NKVD head, and the foresight of its new head, Leverente Beria, would rescue Korolev from his death sentence. Beria sent a message to the men detaining Korolev that he was to be sent to a holding facility in Moscow rather than to Siberia. The message arrived far too late, though. By the time it reached Korolev's captors, he had already been sent on the Trans-Siberian Railway eastwards some two weeks earlier. Korolev would reach the slave camp in August of 1939 after a very torturous journey east. It would take three months for the message rescinding his stay to reach the camp, by which point Korolev had been reduced greatly from his experience within the walls. His experience resulted in him losing all of his teeth due to scurvy, and he would eventually keep the aluminum cup, which was one of the sole possessions he was allowed to keep within the gulag system, his name still inscribed on it, for most of his life. 
He also, for later parts of his life, refused to even talk about that time and had a uh, slight fear of the cold. But, though, he was headed back to Moscow after the orders from Beria were received by the Gulag, but not as a free man. Korolev would be resentenced to eight years in a camp that would use him for his mind instead of his body. The Soviet Union decided that although Korolev, among other members of the intelligentsia, were deemed traitors, they still had services to provide to the Soviet Union in designing weapons and aircraft, instead of being a physical laborer mining gold or other resources out in the Siberian wastes. These Gulag members were formed into a new aircraft research and design group called the Tupolevka Sargana. I, once again, we do not know how to speak Russian. We're doing our best here, we're, guys. We're doing our best. This prisoner organization would be its most famous arrestee member, Andrei Tupolev. He was the leading member of this organization and one of the Soviet Union's premier aviation minds. You might know the Tupolev name from many aircrafts. Although they were allowed more freedoms than normal gulag detainees, they were still not free. The results were, and results were expected. Their captivity by the state was to ensure that no thoughts or dissent could brew and the easement of Stalin's paranoia was the top priority by these camps and also the defense of the Soviet Union and the control of the intelligentsia. Their first success was designed of the TU bomber. This success closely followed by the June 1941 Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Lucky they got the bomber done in time. The invasion prompted the group to be relocated to Omosk, where they would organize the construction of a factory to produce the TU-2 for the new war effort. Glushko and the other RNII group members uh, and Korolev's betrayer would also be placed in the Gulag system in a similar manner to Korolev. Glushko had the fortune to lead his Gulag group in the design and construction of liquid fuel rockets. The primary goal of this team, this team design work was just in small rockets, one able to assist aircraft in short runway or heavy load takeoffs, or help in developing the Kachushka, the rocket artillery system that Glushko worked on before being sentenced to the Gulag system, which would be a fear in the minds of many Nazis across the Eastern Front. Korolev was well aware, though, of Glushko's betrayal of him, but he seemingly did not take it personally by this point. In fact, Korolev requested to be transferred to Glushko's Gulag group to aid in rocket development. This request was granted in 1942. In this program, Korolev was able to prove his worth and value, earning his freedom in 1944. He continued to work in the program after he was freed from the Gulags to aid the war effort and advance the field he was so passionate about, and he would stay in Omansk until the war's end in, in August of 1945, finally seeing his wife and daughter in Moscow seven years after his arrest by the NKVD. Pinamunde in Germany was where it was chosen for Test Stand 1 to be built. An enormous facility constructed to aid in the development of rocket engines, Test Stand 1 allowed its German designers to test engines that were as powerful as 200 pounds of thrust. It represented the scale of investment provided to Werner von Braun's rocket development team by the Nazi regime. 
Pinamunde also housed the designers, workers, and prisoners of war who operated the assembly line building the new A-4 rocket. It had a liquid oxygen production facility, a supersonic wind tunnel, and even a radar site. It was an all-in-one research, design, test, and construction facility that would soon serve the next big war. And the A-4 successfully flew in October of 1942. But many problems had to be solved to allow the gargantuan four-story tall rocket to fly. Notably, the regenerative cooling systems that could cool the nozzles of smaller engines enough to work would fail spectacularly when the 800,000-horsepower engine of the A-4 would ignite. The regenerative cooling system, the old system, consisted of thin tubes wrapped around the engine bell that would carry fuel in them. The engine exhaust would heat up the bell and subsequently the fuel, and as the fuel would feed into the engine, it would carry that heat through it, and the preheating would allow it to work more efficiently. It was all cooling via conduction, but the lack of metallurgy was what kept the sheet tubing metal system from working on larger rocket engines. The designers simply didn't have it in the design to allow this uh, particular system to work as their metallurgy just wasn't good enough. So they designed a new film cooling design. It worked through small holes perforated around the engine's bell that would seep alcohol over the metal of the engine bell and form a thin insulating layer that would boil off but continue to be regenerated and it would be able to keep the temperatures low enough to operate. The next problem to solve before the A4 could fly was that of propellant delivery. On smaller engines, gravity could be relied upon to drive the fuel downwards from the tank to the engine. But on these far larger rockets, not only would the flow rate be insufficient for these much thirstier larger engines, but also the angle the A4 would fly in, near the top of the parabolic arc it took as it flew over the Earth, would impede the flow further. It just wasn't sufficient to allow it to actually maintain its propulsion. So large pumps, or turbo pumps, had to be designed to produce that could be able to force the fuel engineward to the design flow rate. So rather than a trickle, they needed a stream. Von Braun went to a pump factory with his specifications in hand, and he expected to be told that the flow rate of 300 pounds per square inch and 50 gallons per second, and all in, of course, one small, simple, reliable package was impossible, But he was surprised to learn that, well, that pump already exists, and it's already being built, and it's used in firefighting. This last major hurdle for the A-4 to fly was in guidance technology. Useless was a weapon that could not hit a desired target, so the engineers at Penamunde had to design a system that was reliable, as always. It could operate at high speed and be accurate over the distances required for the rocket to even hit anything. What they came up with in the end was... based off of uh, contemporary aircraft autopilot systems very loosely. It was a gyroscopic system that would be enabled in flight, and so any variations from the desired angle would be counteracted with thrust vectored in the opposite direction. Effectively, the system was like balancing a pole on one hand. Whenever it leans one way, your hand must lean the other way to counteract it. It also helped with the large fins you'll see on the bottom of it if you look at pictures. Those would also be able to be moved by this system and help it redirect it in flight. This system did prove well enough. After two failed flights in June of 1942, finally the A-4 successfully flew 116 miles in October of 1942. And then the A-4 rocket had most of the kinks and bugs in the system worked out by the spring of 1943. 
1943 was the decisive point of Second World War, as it turns out. The Soviets had just turned the tide at Stalingrad and had taken the war's initiative on the Eastern Front. The Eighth War had arrived just in time to strike fear in the hearts of Londoners on the exact opposite side they need to focus on and waste precious resources and production lines on a useless endeavor. Hitler approved the A4 for mass production out of the act of sheer desperation, not for any military value it offered. Hitler loved the idea of wonder weapons, believing that this would be able to turn the tide of the war at any point or be able to uh, hopefully defend Germany from being crushed on both sides by allied forces. That wasn't the case and we are happy that that wasn't the case. Yes. If dropping tons of explosives on London would force the Brits to the negotiating table, potentially be able to knock out one of the Allies' members, uh, as Hitler planned with the Wonder Weapon, that would have happened in 1940 with the Blitz. But that wasn't the case, and the AF-4 was merely a weapon of vengeance. The second such weapon, otherwise entitled the V-2. The A-4 is the V-2. The V-1 was a completely different weapon that we are not talk, talking about right now because it doesn't really pertain to Von Braun very much. The A1 was effectively a jet engine that would fly, and it was tiny. It wasn't really a rocket. Now primed for military mass production, the V2, formerly the A4, would be mass-produced using primary methods of the Nazis. Slave camps, primarily the slave, the subcamp of... Buchenwald called Dora. This was the production hub of the V2 rocket. The concentration camp system relied heavily on the slave labor from the persecuted groups all across Europe, whether it was Jew, Gypsy, Gay, or any type whatsoever who ended up in a camp. They were now slaves. At this point of the war, von Braun knew this was the case. Von Braun brother, von Braun's brother was the plant manager at Nordhausen, where the slave labor was digging out the buried production lines in the mountains to develop the A2. Von Braun's brother oversaw the work being done by the inmates of Dora, the subcamp of that concentration camp. Von Braun was in charge of the rocket program, which Nordhausen was a part of. Although he worked at Petamunde in the research wing, of the program, he definitely knew how his rockets were being built. 20,000 people were killed in Dora. Von Braun would later claim that he did not know slave labor was being used for the development of the V2. Uh, this podcast believes that is a lie. Von there's Braun. there's no way he didn't know Von, how it was it, being built. It, it, Von Braun and like many other members of Operation Paperclip uh, would be war criminals. Yes. And uh, would not face any persecution or trial for that. In fact, that. one of von Braun's Nazi overseers was actually killed for his efforts. Von Braun was just a better liar than he was. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at the list of members of Operation Paperclip, most of which uh, ended up going to Huntsville, Alabama to uh, work on American rockets and did not face any persecution. And if you did, it's because you screwed up and pissed off the Americans. Yeah. The Germans would successfully launch some 3,225 V-2 rockets at London and Antwerp, or approximately 3,000 tons of explosives, roughly equivalent to the payload capacity of 1,500 B-17 bombers. Although the United States would build over 12,000 B-17 bombers, though, such was the state of the war for Germany. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the atomic bomb ended the war. Not the V-2, as Hitler has so desperately hoped with his wonder weapon dream. 
Hitler didn't even live to see them drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August, in August of 1945, as he had committed suicide deep in some hole in Berlin months earlier to terrified of the Red Army's approach. The V-2 would now be some of the many spoils of war for the Allies. By the end of the war, the Allies had gained access to Nazi Germany's rocket work. The U.S. captured Pinamunde and the facilities it housed, which the home of the V-1 and V-2 design teams, and they subsequently managed to make off with most of the top rocket scientists and most of the program's paperwork, blueprints, and notes, and even some full-scale, already-completed V-2 rockets. The Soviets had to settle for the ancillary work they could find spread throughout their zones of control. This left them with less hardware and less experts, though they had their homegrown program, the RNII, group that they could hand all this research and information over to. Stalin, upon learning of the V-2 rockets, and upon acquisition of V-2 replicas, prototypes, and documentation, well, he began to ferment the plan. See, the United States, which was the sole remaining undamaged and undevastated power, had atomic weapons at its disposal, and they had an air fleet with the range to deliver them to Moscow with the B-29 superfortress. Stalin knew the Soviets would soon also have the bomb, as he had plenty of spies in the Manhattan Project, and development was going pretty quickly, but they did not have a comparable air force. They didn't have any bombers with the range. They would manage to copy a B-29 soon, but they just didn't have the same type of air power the United States had, as they had been too focused on fighting the Nazi scourge throughout Europe with their army. Most of their money went into that. But what if rockets could solve the bomber gap? What if a rocket could be constructed with enough range and payload capacity that it could deliver an atomic bomb to the United States? Well, if this could be done, then the two major powers would be on equal footing. Stalin would soon direct all the powers of the Soviet Union to achieve this goal. Tune in next time for episode three of the Space Shuttle series on Clio history. Thank you. You can go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Clio History. You can email us at cleohistorypodcast.com. And if you like this episode, you can uh, please share it or give us a review. That'd be awesome. And uh, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. I've been Matt. And I've been RC. Thank you. <laughs>